Welcome to Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolov. And we have a great guest on today, someone we've actually known for a really long time, fell out of touch with the writer and entertainment journalist extraordinaire, Mark Harris. Yeah, but I would say it's impossible to really know anybody in high school. So like we, we quote unquote knew him. And like like I, we we knew ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Mark Harris went to high school with us, Trinity class of eighty one, and he's gone on to do these extraordinary books. And his new new book about Mike Nichols is like you know everyone is reading it. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an incredible book. I mean, I think a, a guy like Mike Nichols for me, kind of always got his due and never really gets his due because you know like movies and and culture, but really movies are either kind of exist to show you worlds that you never knew existed or to show you your world in a new way. And, and I feel he was more the latter. And I think that uh, in a way, his, his, his hand, uh, the, the rudder of the ship that he would always steer was, was very subtle because it was about trying to show you something and inform you about something about our world and our life. But, but it doesn't get a lot of like, it's not a lot of razzle dazzle as opposed to some other directors. You know, I was, I was of course, lucky enough um, to, to watch Mike at work a lot because Tony did so many shows with him. And I, I can't tell you, I mean, the stories growing up, and I'm, some of them are in Mark's new book, of course, but, you know, stories especially about, um, you know, Mike had lost all of his hair, for example, from the, the pressure of being an immigrant and... and um, it was actually bad medication that the Nazis gave him, but... Right, right. Well, all of that. And Tony tells a story about how um, Mike showed up at a dinner. It was a few days that they were meeting with someone and the woman was just looking so closely at Mike's eyebrows and his sideburns and everything. So the next day for breakfast, he came down with a full beard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, things like that because he was so much fun. But I have to tell you but, that. But, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Briggs. No, I was just going to say one other story that that um, from my own experience was when Mike was working on Hurley Burley, and and the the opportunity for me as as at the time a, a studying theater, going to NYU grad school, and to be able to sit and watch Mike Nichols direct Christopher Walken, William Hurt, Sigourney Weaver, Jerry Stiller, Cynthia Nixon, who was 16 years old and in two shows running up and down, you know, to do two shows was just such an extraordinary, I was always aware of how lucky I was to know Mike Nichols. And of course, that's not really all we're gonna be talking to Mark Harris about, but. Uh, I was about to say, and, and that obviously is a focal point in this moment in time, but, but one of the things about Mark's career that I certainly have, uh, kind of been in awe of is his ability to kind of like make sense of the the entertainment cultural marketplace and not just the moments of time but like really what it really means can it give it perspective and, and I'm so I'm fascinated to kind of hear about his process and, and his journey on that um and and then also yeah I mean uh, talking movies talking theater talking TV talking books. Movies? You? you I know. You talking know. movies? What? No, I know, I know. Now, now I have to go back into therapy, which really sucks. <laughs> anyway, listen, we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back with Mark Harris, whose new book, Mike Nichols, his bio is amazing. Uh, he has other books, 5K Back. We're going to talk about that. It was made into a Netflix series and just about his whole process. Yeah, 5K Back to me is, is a masterpiece and really something that you could probably hold up with any book written about the 20th century to discuss how America saw itself uh, and, and still sees itself. So, Okay, well, we're going to take a little break first. So you're listening <laughs> to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolov. We'll be right back after this. Chimneys are cozy. Chimneys are warm. I think of chimneys as ports in a storm, but warm and cozy or not, I would give up the lot if I could only be a The following is a public service announcement from 88.3 WLIW-FM. 
founded in 2002, Fighting Chance is a free-of-charge cancer counseling and resource center independent from any hospital and funded solely by charitable contributions located in Sag Harbor on Long Island's East End, providing patients and their caregivers free access to a variety of resources and professional counseling. More information at fightingchance.org or 631-725-4646. Look at me. Sundays on the East End, Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we'd like to welcome our guest, Mark Harris. So great to be here. Yeah, it's Thank awesome. you so much for coming on. Where, where are we finding you? Uh, I am in New York City in our apartment on the Upper West Side, where I've spent not the whole pandemic, but most of it. Yeah. Yeah, and you were talking about, uh, I mean, just to jump off and maybe work our way backwards or all over the place, you were talking about what it's like doing book tours, and I'm putting that in air quotes, during this time. Tell, tell us a little about that. Yeah, I was, um, you know, at first nervous and, and uh, I mean, not upset, but I guess just slightly disappointed that I wasn't going to be able to do any book signings, any like author meet and greets and stuff, you know, uh, with the kind of books I write. Very often I'll go somewhere and show and then do a Q&A afterwards or I'll introduce a movie and that was obviously out. But it's it's worked out really nicely because uh, you can do so many more things virtually than I could ever do uh, in person. And, and you can kind of, you can arrange virtual screenings too. Like a lot of people, um, you know, most of Mike Nichols's movies are very accessible uh, via one platform or another. So, so I've been very happy about you know being able to get the word out about this book uh, uh, in corners of the country that I would not ever get to physically. Yeah, and you know what? Before before we came on the air, you had said something in passing that I had also wanted to ask you about, which is you know the first two books you really tackled really were these kind of cultural sociological books of of the movie, what movies mean, what the, the people that were making them, their impact on culture and everything. And a biography is a, is a much different mountain to climb. What, what made you want to choose Mike? And, and, and what, what was that like for you? What was that journey like? Well, I think one of the reasons I, I chose this was that I hadn't done it before, that it was a different mountain to climb and a different kind of mountain to climb. Um, and, and I mean, of course, I thought that Mike Nichols had a uniquely interesting career and life, you know, to be a theater director and movie director simultaneously, and also to have launched those careers out of a performing career. I thought it was a really unique sort of second half of the 20th century cultural figure. But from from just a writing and research point of view, I thought this would be a really interesting challenge for me because my first two books um, each took place over a period of like maybe five, six years, and involved half a dozen uh, characters who I could jump uh, between. So they were structural challenges. You know, you had to figure out five different timelines and where they intersected. And when one dried out, then you would know you had to jump to another. And a biography, at least this kind of straightforward chronological biography, is not a structural challenge at all, but it's a huge challenge to kind of stay with one plot line, the plot line of a life for 83 years with no opportunity. Like if there are dry patches, if there are periods when nothing very interesting is going on, you better figure out a way to stay in them. Um, and if there's places where you can't understand why he's making the decisions he's making, you have to sit there until you understand it or think you do. So so it was that was a challenge. and, and I, a really interesting one. Can I ask, uh, I know that you met Mike Nichols um, on set, wasn't it, for when for uh, Angels in America? I think so. I, I have, like, 
remarkable amnesia about the first time I actually met him, but it was definitely around that point. And the first thing I can remember was going to the set or, or it wasn't. Let's it wasn't, explain. Can we explain your. Yeah, sure. Uh, my husband, Tony Kushner uh, and Mike in about 2000 or 2001 started working together on the HBO version of Angels in America. And I had not met Mike before that. And I think the first time I saw him and the first time I met him, there may have been a kind of introductory dinner that I'm blanking on, but I think it was in Central Park where he was on location filming a scene in Angels in America where one of the characters goes looking for rough sex. So it was it was very funny to see. And it was what turned out to be a rough shooting night for Mike, a night when he didn't feel a lot of confidence about what he was doing. So it was fascinating to, to have my first encounter with him uh, be at a moment when he was really, you know, in the deep end of the pool. But at what point did you decide, yes, uh, this is, I'm going to take on this Herculean task of writing this book? Oh, yeah. Um, a after he died, which was in um, December of 2014, when Mike was alive, this was not something I had entertained at all. The closest um, uh, we had ha come to talking about it was that I used to say to him, you really should write your memoirs. You really should write your autobiography. And he said he had no interest in doing that. And, and in fact, would joke, except he wasn't really joking, that he had made his future biographer's task incredibly difficult by getting rid of all of his papers. Um, and then toward the very, very end of his life, he started talking, not to me, but to someone else about the possibility of um, doing a book that wouldn't be so much a straight up biography as a book where he would go project by project and talk about the work. And he was kind of intrigued by that, which I thought was an interesting change from where he had been. And then it didn't come to anything and he died before he could even really make a decision about it. So after that, I mean, I going back to his stand-up days with, with Elaine May, like I, I've always felt that where he found the humor um, was was not by revealing himself in obvious ways. It, it was by by putting on a, a kind of a, a suit of armor, a costume of normalcy, or of the things we take for granted. Uh, I know one of my mom's favorite. Uh, bits that uh, Nichols and May did that had to do with an operator and, and and sounding out the alphabet and you know P is in pneumonia where every word was different. It was in the idiosyncrasies of interactions and stuff. So it must have been very hard for him uh, if he was kind of a private guy and a guarded guy to want to reveal who he really was. Uh, and, and so it is in the work that I think that that would come out. I, I think so. And and you know even in the work. Uh, Mike often said that um, the the idea that work was a form of self-revelation many times didn't come to him until after the work had already been completed. He, he said, you know, I think the work is always about you and always about who you are, but you don't often know in the, what particular way it's about you. It, the famous example of that, he says, uh, was The Graduate, where he, he really had no idea, and I believe this because it was very early in his directing career, he had no idea that Benjamin was any kind of surrogate for him uh, until uh, he had completed the movie and saw a parody of it in Mad Magazine where, where the Dustin Hoffman character says to his parents, Mom and Dad, I don't understand. How come I'm Jewish and you're not? Um, <laughs> Oh my God, that's so great. And, and yet, like, he he knew enough to not cast Robert Redford right. for a part that, in the novel at least, is written to look like Robert Redford. He knew enough to take this risk of casting uh, not only this guy who looked Jewish, but who was completely unknown. So, so he was really good at um, chasing his... Uh, subconscious. And, uh, you know, Alec, you were saying earlier that the, uh, you were talking about the two kinds of directors, uh, you know, that and how we tend to value one more than the other. And I think um, one thing about uh, Mike was that some of his greatest skills uh, and assets as, as a director were kind of invisible. And one of them was his ability to chase the thing that, that you know, to trust that he should do something even if he didn't 
have an immediate answer as to why he should do it. He, you right. know, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a weird sports analogy, but like, you know, there are certain like in sports, there are certain uh, to, to win, to win a game. There are certain aspects where people do the, the stuff that you don't really look at, but it sets you up to win. And then there's the people who are very dazzling, right? There are people who do things and the cameras on them and all that stuff. And I always thought of Mike as a director. And again, I didn't know him. I'm the one in this conversation that did not know him physically or personally, but I always saw his work as he, he got out of the way while being present in every moment. And that is fascinating to me. Uh, I think that's true. And also, I'm so excited that you just used a sports analogy <laughs> and I understood it. Like, if, if we were still in high school, this would be such a win moment for me. Yeah, but all right, well, I'll, I'll go another place though, which is I put him in my brain in the same place I would put David Byrne. And that uh, commenting on modern life in a way that uh, sees the vacuum of meaning in modern life. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that's true, but you know, I think we often get stuck uh, because Mike didn't write any of his own stuff. I mean, he, of course, he he did co-write with Elaine May all of their most famous sketches. But once he started directing, he you know he worked with writers. He really revered writers. Um, he was very collaborative in that way. And I think often for directors who don't write, we have a harder time pinning them down culturally. I mean, if we're talking about Tarantino or the Coen brothers or, or Paul Thomas Anderson, we really are talking about one man shows in a way, but, but with Mike, it, it, you know, his task was as he saw it to go toward material that interested him rather than create a whole sequence of movies that added up to a, a kind of very planned, coherent, statement about uh the human condition or the world but it's it's really interesting that you're both saying that because i'm thinking about just the movies off the top of my head like the graduate you said which definitely is is sort of a look at alec you kind of said like the time the the times and the human condition of that time and then you have who's afraid of virginia wolf and again i mean i'm bringing myself into it because I was lucky enough to see that Mike and Elaine perform George and Martha wow. up at Long Wharf. Um, I, and, you know, and then I realized, like, for the opening of Russian Tea Room, Mike and Elaine did a stand-up. And I remember looking at someone else, I can't remember who it was there, and just realizing, like, we were watching history. Like, we were watching history, because they never did that. I was so blessed to, to, to have Mike as part of my life. But the other one, the movie that I just is always on the back burner. And it's one of my favorites is regarding Henry. I mean, I just loved that movie. I thought it was such a look at the ability to start over, of course, which is such a beautiful gift. But but it was a look at that kind of 90s, you know, the Wall Street, you know, Gordon Gecko kind of lifestyle. And then someone gets shot in the head and forgets everything and has to start over. And, and he turns out to be a nice guy. And of course, it's Harrison Ford, who is easy on the eyes. Um, but I love that he, he that he chose that, you know, as as one of his auteur moments. Well, it's that's a strange, that's an interesting case, that movie, because Scott Rudin, for instance, who produced it, said to me, there's nothing of Mike in that movie. It was a job. It was a chance to work with Harrison Ford again, who we really liked. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't a personal movie to him. And I think in some ways that's true. I think there's a way in which Mike detached from it once he started to make it. But at the same time, he made it at a point in his life when the idea of getting a clean reboot, you know, I mean, when when you're, you're early in your fourth marriage, yeah, maybe you do think, oh, I love the idea of a story that just uh, is about artificially wiping the slate clean and wiping your sins clean with it. Um, and then, yes, there was also this Wall Street thing, which in a way connects to Working Girl, which he'd made a few years earlier. I mean, there were themes that Mike came back to over and over again. He did a lot of movies about like sexual competitiveness between men. And, you know, his relationship to wealth was really interesting because Mike liked money and he liked spending money and he liked living very, very well. Um, but there was this other part of him, this kind of outsider part of him that could always stand aside a little 
from it and and observe and 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 that and that I think it's 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 the you know the very act of being American is becoming American, like the assimilation. And when you're an immigrant, uh, you know, and I'm a third generation or second generation, depending on which side, but I still kind of have the immigrants uh, mythology in my head. Uh, it's, it's the very act of being American that makes you American. And I think that for Mike, I certainly saw that in, in the choices he did make in his career, uh, is that he was forever fascinated by that. And maybe that's where he really put himself because each movie or play, uh, he, he, was a, he was kind of detached from it and yet completely driving it. And, and that seems to be very similar, like exploring uh, his own journey, even if he would never have copped to it. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that that notion of becoming versus being, like the, that being American is um, becoming American, uh, really resonates for me in terms of Mike, because, you know, he, everything for him was about becoming, like, you know, he had, but because of his hair loss, he sort of had to turn himself into a, a presentable version of himself every day, you, you know, they're, 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 Mike had to construct himself more than most people do, certainly more than most directors do. Uh, and I think I think you can feel that um, in his work because there's a, there are a lot of stories he told. I think of Working Girl and and I think of Silkwood in a way. Um, and even The Graduate, he's really interested in um, the journey of characters who are a little bit lost and then something kind of clicks in their head and they 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 have a destination they know where they want to go they know what their purpose is right and, and uh, all right now i'm gonna bring it back to you then mark like and as as you were talking about your other books and when you started your other your other two books pictures at a revolution and five came back did you have a thesis that you were um uh, that you were before your your process or did you find the thesis in your work you just knew you wanted to explore this area and how did that in, you know compare to well what's your thesis when you're really looking at one person over a course of a 50 or 60 year career um i deliberately did not have a thesis for either of my first two books or even really for this one i had some ideas that i hoped i would explore but i am kind of uh i'm very wary of thesis books because um you know you have a thesis and then you write an introduction and kind of set the thesis out and say, this is why I'm writing this. And then you get into a place, like I didn't want to fall into a trap of um, doing research or reporting or interviewing that would contradict something that I had set up in my own head. I, I wanted to uh, create a, a kind of exploratory experience for myself where anything I found out would go toward um, the the eventual book, like I, I wouldn't have to separate um, things into ideas that fit my thesis or ideas that contradicted my thesis that I had you to. Never wanted, you never wanted to be Colin Powell holding up that vial at the UN, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's why the Mike Nichols book doesn't have an introduction. We just start with chapter one because I don't really want to tell you what I think of him and his journey before we go on, on the journey. Um, it, and the, part of that is just selfish. I like researching more when I'm not freaked out about finding out something that won't fit. We're talking with Mark Harris, author of the new book, Mike Nichols, A Life. We're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we're coming to you on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online at WLIWFM.org. And you can also like our Facebook page, Sundays on the East End. We're going to be right back after this. Information. Uh, operator, will you give me the number, please, of uh, George Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N, at 4411 Huguenot Walloon Drive? That is George Kaplan. Yes, that's right. That is Kaplan. Yes. That is K as in knife, A as in aardvark, P as in pneumonia, L as in luscious, A as in aardvark once again, N as in you will post Kaplan. Uh, I, I think so, yeah. <laughs> Just one moment, sir. I will look that number up for you. Thank you very much. 
Serving eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, this is 88.3 WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio in Southampton, New York, Long Island's only NPR station. Your source for news, music, and entertainment, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We're back. We are back. Bridget Brent. Leroy, Alex Sokolow, Mark Harris. It's like old home day for the <laughs> Mark, you've been talking about your books, but you also are a, a well-known and well-respected, rightfully so, entertainment journalist. And with that, as I know, <laughs> you're writing, you know, 600 to 1,000 words, bam, you have deadlines, um, you know, maybe longer if it's a it's a if it's a feature piece, but it's not the same as writing a book. So tell me about the two the two sides of of Mark Harris, uh, the entertainment yeah. journalist and the novelist. Well, well, I started at um like my first long job was at Entertainment Weekly in the '90s and early 2000s when when it you know I, I was there from the time it launched and I was there for the first couple of years as a writer, but then for most of the time as an editor. Uh, and, you know, Entertainment Weekly was, I mean, we did at one point do long stories um, and deeply reported stories, but it was uh, also like, you know, the, the, the grand zero for short takes and, and listicles and charticles and... and it was one yeah. with listicles. I remember reading. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I wrote for the magazine was a listicle. Um, and and uh, so... I had a great time there and learned a ton and loved the people I worked with and and you know I'm very proud of some of the work we did but but I it definitely uh, I, I kind of simultaneously developed a thirst uh, maybe around 2003 I think when I was about to turn 40 um, I I developed a thirst for writing again which I had not done in a regular way for many years and for exploring something for a long time um, and for something a little more historical rather than like the thing that was um, happening that week at that moment you know uh, I, I, I don't want to put this in, in, in you know your mouth or, or but like I found in, in my tenure uh, living in LA and and working, you know, in service of the, of the uh, family-oriented movie business, uh, mostly. Um, I found the, the marketplace, I, I liken it where everybody out there is kind of a melon in the supermarket. And, and that like, you know, you, you want to be the fresh melon, you want to be the melon that gets the mist and they charge a little bit more, but you're going to get dinged up along the way and then you can end up in the fruit salad. And that's kind of <laughs> like everybody's career, you know? And and the the thing that's very soul sucking about that is that it is so transactional. It is so every week there's a new thing, and every week that at some point I, I could speak for myself, I, I lost what I loved about writing in movies to begin with, and and only by uh, physically separating from it, but then challenging myself was I able to like find what I like to begin with. And so I, I, I wonder if you were kind of going through the same thing, which is you're, you're, you're kind of living, reporting on something, and every week it's something else. And, and yet there's, there's more, like there's more to culture. Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of it has to do with getting older, or it, it did for me. I mean, there, if, if, you're, if you're obsessed with pop culture and really interested in it, there is a point when the its ability to constantly refresh itself is kind of exhilarating that, that, I mean, there, there was a time when I loved the idea that three months from now, like I might know what movie was going to come out, but I, I wouldn't know what everyone was going to be excited about that, that, that changed really, really quickly. And then there comes a point when, at least for me, 
you want to take a longer view of things. You want to be able to step back a little and try to see how things connect in a larger way. Um, the, the constant newness of it becomes its own form of a routine. And, and you want to kind of, you need to move back somehow literally move away what you're talking about like get 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 out of the environment or in my case it was move back from the particular kind of work i had been doing to try to take the thing i loved which was movies and cultural history and come at it in the most un magazine-ish way possible um which and, and and by the way, again, I'll go back to five came back. You know, it's I, I can remember being in college and and studying, you know, the directors during World War Two and, and the kind of propaganda films and, and the uh, uh, association with the Soviet Union. And then all of a sudden the war ends and everything changes and it ends up in the blacklist and all this stuff. You, you're actually tackling this like moment by moment inflection point of America's, how America saw itself, when movies were still relatively uh, young as a cultural um, uh, form. Uh, so that must have been so fascinating for you to go down that, that rabbit hole. Well, it ended up being really fascinating, but I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you guys that the, the origin of that book was that I kind of caught myself not paying attention to something that that you know, I, I suddenly realized that I had always looked at the war years as just a, a, a resume gap for all these directors like Weiler and and uh, Ford and and Capra and George Stevens. Uh, you know, it was the thing I kind of mentally skipped over. I knew they'd been in the war. I wasn't that interested. I wanted them to get back to making movies, and and I it was sort of the opposite of pictures in a revolution. Cause I went into pictures super interested in the 1960s and in all the changes that happened there. I, I was conscious more of world war two as something I had avoided from the time I was a very little kid. And my father who was a veteran would tell war stories. And I, even as a kid, I just remember completely tuning out. It did not grab me. It, I, I found it upsetting. The idea that he left home at 17 seemed really scary and, why would you put yourself in harm's way? So Five Came Back for me was a journey into the thing that I had avoided. And I think that's often a really good way. You know, I like going towards something that I've been dodging or that scares me or, or you know, like that. And, and that Five Came Back was a definite example of that. That's amazing. I want to touch on the idea that, of course, you are married to one of the greatest dramatists of the second half of the 20th century, Tony Kushner and Pulitzer Prize winner. And Alec and I had talked about this before, you know, what's it like having two writers in the house? Well, at the moment he is locked in the other room with the dog. So that, <laughs> with with our dog, so that there won't be barking during this. Who, who wins at Scra Scrabble? Who does the crossword puzzle? I am absolutely the games guy. He does not like puzzles and games. Uh, they make him incredibly anxious. So, <laughs> um, and of course, I, I have history with Tony from NYU. He was my research and description professor, and he gave me the book A Canticle for Libra. Oh, wow. I'll never forget. It was such a fantastic book. So we shared that love of kind of dystopian. Yeah, so you have you had an experience with Tony that I've never had, which is being taught by him. I, I've always <laughs> I, I've always really like wondered what he was like as a teacher. That's but, really funny. But, but I, I want to go. Right, but let's go back to this. So two writers, one one TV clicker. Like, like I, <laughs> I I certainly know that that when I am writing, I I disappear into myself. You know, I I become I'm not as present. How do you kind of manage? Uh, your your marriage, your your relationship, your home, yourself, everything. When you're tackling something, and he's tackling something. Yeah, that is absolutely a, a weird occupational hazard. And um, I think you know one of the ways in which we're very lucky is that we are both writers, but we do very different kinds of writing. And so we have enough in common about the experience of writing and the experience of just you know, that weird feeling where it's almost like having mono or something, or like 
a low grade flu for the whole time you're working on something. You're just kind of dazed and, you know, in your own head. Um, We both know what that's like, but we're not doing the exact same thing. So we can also, I think we serve as good sounding boards for each other, Um, you know, because we don't, we're, we, we, we work on different pieces of turf. So that really helps. And, and honestly, you know, for the last year during the pandemic, um, I mean, we probably have had less of a lifestyle adjustment than almost anyone we know because we were stay-at-home writers already. Um, you know, so uh, the only thing that's changed is, you know, eating more. Um, <laughs> that's wonderful. When did you guys meet? We met in uh, 1998, 23 years ago. We're almost at our 23rd uh, anniversary. And it was... Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, awesome. It was really, really fast. I mean, it was, I think within um, a, a week, we knew it was kind of for real. And within a month, we knew it was really serious. And we've been together ever since. And, and, and do you, are, and I'm going to ask this question again, as, as writers, like I have the hardest time explaining what it is. I, I can tell people what I'm trying to do, but really what it is, that invisible thing I'm reaching for. Um, when you guys support each other uh, creatively or support each other in your relationship, do you guys get into like the, the, the weeds of, of each other's work or is it really more just, the 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 true support of you're on a noble journey you're a spiritual warrior and i'm here for you i would say that it is um (laughs) that's a really great question (laughs) i think i am weedsier and he is bigger picture like i think because i was an editor for so many years if he um presents something to me uh, that he's stuck on or that he's frustrated with, I tend to be very solution oriented. Like, let's, you know, uh, let's look at this and tear it apart and and see, you know, how, how we can fix it. Uh, and when I'm stuck on something, he tends to be um, a bigger picture. Like, what are you trying to do? What's, or, or maybe like, here's the thing that excites me about this. And do you want to go farther in that direction? Um, but he's not a, a picker apart. Um, I, I'm sort of more of a diagnostician, and he's more of a a vision guy. But but I, I've tried to pick up a little of the vision thing from him, and and maybe he's tried to pick up a little bit of uh, you know the nuts and bolts, uh, you know, sort of short term solution stuff from me. I want to go even further back. Like, let's go back to like the high school years, or like your college years, when did you kind of discover that this was the direction you wanted to head in? I mean, we all went to Trinity together. Um, I, I know that you were involved in like the newspaper, the school newspaper, or like, weren't you the the yearbook and the theater club or whatever, but yeah. you know, when did that it's all start? Not, not theater club. I was too scared to do theater. The only theater I ever did was your senior project. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was my my you know I think it's probably a very very good thing for the theater um, that that I went in another direction. Um, I think the first it actually is a high school story. It was at our prom, and um, I was dancing with a teacher, um, our uh, psychology teacher, um, and. Uh, she said, so what are you going to do like in college? What do you think? Um, and, and, you know, being the sort of good boy that I was, I said, oh, I think I'll probably, um, go to law school, uh, after that. And she just rolled her eyes and said, oh, that's boring. Be a writer. And like, it was they did not give I, good. They did not give good. No, Mark, can I tell you, I had one of those in college, right? I, I, I finished college and uh, I start writing uh, and I, my folks are very kind uh, up to a point and they're like, you know, go to law school, uh, you know, and and so I had to go back to, to I went to Penn. So I go back to Penn and, and uh, 
get a letter of recommendation from somebody and, and I went to one professor and she, she was saying, so what have you been doing? I said, well, you know, I've been writing, but you know, and she wouldn't give me the recommendation. She's like, the world has enough lawyers, you know, like the world has enough lawyers is exactly what she said. And I have to tell you it, I, I mean, she had no idea, but it, it went into me like a lightning bolt. It was like, you know, sometimes you can say something to a kid at exactly the moment they need to hear it. Um, this was the first time that an adult had ever said to me, you could be a writer. And wow. it literally changed the course of my life. I, I think by the time I got to college that fall, I had kind of decided that writing was what I wanted to try to do. And and who was the teacher? Right? I want to know who it was. I'm trying to remember. It was Lenisa White. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and and then as far as like uh, entertainment writing or, or cultural writing, uh, was what drew you into that? Like what what? Well, in in this connects more to what you do because in, in college I I I went to Yale and I was very like I was on the school newspaper and worked on that, but I also hung out a lot with the, this crowd of uh, people who wanted to go into movie making. Um, and the and a number of them really did. Um, uh, and I did movies with them and stuff like that. And I felt like I I was at this fork where I could either really try to be a screenwriter, or I could try to do this other thing, which was write about pop culture. And I felt I thought you know it I should probably look at what I've actually been doing because while I've been thinking, oh, I want to go be a screenwriter, what I've actually been doing is all this work on the school newspaper. And maybe I should go toward the thing that I'm actually doing rather than this thing that I, I always thought if I worked really, really hard and went to film school, maybe I could get all the way up to being an adequate screenwriter. But I, I just had a hunch I wouldn't be great at it. Right, you, you know? felt comfortable with journalism. It, yeah, 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 and and it was so it was a sort of close call. It was a hard call in a way. Um, uh, but, but, um, but you know, and I, I don't want to put this on you, but I would say for me, like uh, being a screenwriter has always been very quixotic. And Terry, it's like you're you're kind of constantly tilting at windmills. Like again, if you if your nature is to analyze and figure out stuff. Uh, there's a part of that that's fantastic because of the structural conversations you can have at any moment. But then there's another part, which is completely insane. And, and the insanity is like, I am making a movie in my head that in success, I will kind of watch somebody else make. And that's insane. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was a kind of insanity that I was not at 22 or 23 prepared to deal with. I think that there, that... For a lot of reasons, I had the idea that like I should have a sort of orderly life. Like I should go back to New York City and get a job, and and maybe I can be exploratory within that job. But I need a job. I don't know how to go. You know, be a creative person. That was where my head was in the mid eighties. Yeah, lock yourself away for three months and hope that you can get like some kind of a book proposal together or something like that. Right. It's, all right. But that, so then when I want to go down now to pictures at a revolution, though, like you're looking at this one year, right? You're looking at these five films and in there is this conversation and there's this philosophical conversation, but it's, it's being done on an industry level. What are we and what are we going to be and where is this going? Um, when you were... Uh, you know, uh, researching and writing that book, did you find that you were putting your imprimatur on in, in a way or, or, did you, or were you finding something else about yourself going on there? Like, cause here you had these things. What, what was the kid, the, the family movie again? It was- um, Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle, right? I mean, like it's, you can't believe that that was somehow considered one of the five best. Right. You know? <laughs> what do you mean? That pink snail? That was like everything, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was, uh, it, it, it goes back to Mike in a way. I mean, I think that first book was a personal book for me in ways that I did not understand while I was doing it. I mean, it was, uh, it, it's a book in many ways about people who go through a journey on a single movie 
And the, the movies take so long that by the time they get from where they started, the first moment of development of the idea in 1963 to the Oscars in 1968, they have changed and the world has changed. And, and I think I was really interested in the idea of, of transformation through work, through, through pursuing a creative enterprise, because at that moment in my life, that is exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to take this leap away from my job and away from the kind of thing I'd done for my whole career into something that I kind of hoped would change my life. And it did. Yeah. Are fantastic. you already at work on something else or like, what do you have in your, in your crosshairs? You know, I'm not it. Uh, I, I'm working on two book proposals, um, either of which could become the next book or neither of which could become the next book, but one could lead to the thing that's the next book. Like I never know. I, it's, um, I, it's not hard for me to find ideas that I'm interested in, but it is hard for me to find, an idea that I think is also a story. Um, Something you want to sit down and tackle for a year or more. Or more, yeah. I mean, it's more. Uh, you know, I'd like to pick up the pace a little bit because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to live to 200. Um, but, uh, but your books will. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm working on it. And and I'm, I'm sort of eager to sit down and roll up my sleeves and start, you know, finding a thing that I can be obsessed with like if i find myself at the end of the day babbling to tony about all of the interesting rabbit holes i went down that's a kind of good sign for me that i know i'm maybe i'm onto something that's what i said to alec actually before you came on is i said it's so fascinating to me um because in order to do for example a biography of mike nichols maybe not so much with uh, with the first two books but you sort of have to become enamored and obsessed with that person. And sometimes you aren't like, you just know it's going to be a good idea. So you kind of need to force that obsession. Um, but as you said, sometimes it just bubbles up from inside. And if you find yourself talking about those things, you, you could put a pin in that and say, yeah, this is where I want to direct my attention. Yeah. I was worried about it with, with this latest book. Cause I thought, am I, you know, Am I too much of a narcissist to like devote myself to someone else every working day for years? You know, maybe I'm not cut out for that, but I, it never became boring to me and it never became frustrating to me. I think partly because he lived such an interesting life, but partly also because his, he lives his life in so many different worlds that, you know, I was never just writing about Mike. I was writing about Mike and the people he worked with or Mike and Chicago in the 1950s or Mike and the New York nightclub scene in the late right. 50s. You know, it, it was it was always something different. So so yeah, it's like, it's like writing for the magazine like you said, where where Yeah. But, but, but you know you know what though what I'm here you know and is it, I think lawyers always say when the facts are on your side you argue the facts and when the facts aren't <laughs> on your side you argue the law. And I think that as a writer and as somebody that's going to tackle something you need to know that the facts are on your side, so to speak. You need to know that what the journey you're going to go on is truthful and that's enough, as opposed to I'm going to create a structure of something and the structure will stand because I know how to right, make a structure right. stand. And, and with Mike, you know, I absolutely was confident from the first day that this was an interesting life worth exploring. So the journey for me wasn't, is this going to be interesting or not? It's how many... How many of the many, many questions that I have about him am I going to be able to answer through through exploring this? Yeah, it, it's amazing, though, when you think about it, and there are other people who, who maybe you can refer to on this, but you, I would hear his name attached to any project and automatically thought, this is going to be great. Yeah, me too. And that's pretty rare. Yeah, I think that's true. And they weren't always great. Sometimes they didn't work out. Like Alec, you we we're all probably of the generation where the first Mike Nichols movie we saw was The Day of the Dolphin. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if Pa loved Fa back as much as Fa loved Pa. <laughs> I was down there for that. I went. We went down to a great Abaco or whatever. Oh wow! Really? 
Yeah, because Tony and Mike were like best, best friends. Yeah, yeah. Many years. That's so funny. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that was not not his best. Let's let's not go out. No, on wait, that. wait, 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 wait. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a big time out here. As somebody who's lived in the talking animal slums for a lot of his adult life, <laughs> I will tell you that was a very talented dolphin. That was a triple threat dolphin. <laughs> the, you know, nine-year-old me who saw that movie at like the Zinkfeld in New York City would absolutely defend plot point by plot point. Like I had no problem with the day of the dolphin. <laughs> That's so great. Anyway, listen, Mark, we've had such a great time having you on the show. We've been speaking with Mark Harris, whose most recent book, Mike Nichols, A Life, is now available. Mark, uh, do you have a website or where should people go to find stuff? No, I don't. Um, um, people can, um, I guess they can go to my Amazon author page for my books or um, the, the writing I do these days is for uh, New York Magazine. So nymag.com, I'm, I'm there. With Vulture too, right? Right, New York and Vulture, yeah. yeah. Right. Gosh, it's been so great to see you, and I, I really can't tell you. And um, you, I guess, is there anything else you want to add before we head off? Nope. No, I, I think you covered it. Well, then, usually we just have Alec give a little rumination. So, Alec, any thoughts about today? Well, yeah, you know, uh, here's what I, first of all, thank thank you, Mark, and thank you, everybody, for, for listening. Um, I, I hope that uh, what, what people can kind of walk away with on this is that, um, you know, we are all on our own journeys um, and, and it's really journeys of discovery. And that's kind of what was hovering above this conversation for me. Mark, Mark has lived a life and a career um, of constant discovery. Um, and I think that uh, his current book, the book that is now uh, you know, this is a plug, but like a should be read, must read because it, it great book, great, great American artist in Mike Nichols, but lived a life of his own discovery as well. And I think that that's really it. So now we're entering into spring, vaccines are in arms, keep wearing your masks, but go out and discover something and make yourself a little bit uncomfortable in the process. And I guarantee you, it's you'll be better off for it. <laughs> you will stay well. You've had quite a day, haven't you? Fa? Fa! Why does Fa speak? Fa! Spring! Yes. Why Fa speak? He does it for me. Why does Fa speak to Pa? Fa! No! Pa! Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone the hill of a street lamp I turn my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stabbed By the flash of a neon light Split the night And catch the sound of silence And in the naked light I saw